0: 1 John 2.2 Here again, many had been deceived by the mere sounds of terms. The very first words of this verse show that Christ is the propitiation for those only for whom he is an advocate with the Father, and John 17.9 proves that he prays for none but the elect. Again, if the closing words of this verse expressed an unlimited universality, then the previous clause would be quite superfluous. If the whole world takes in all the race, then it would be meaningless to say that Christ is a perpetuation for our sins and also for everybody, the hour would be included. Instead, the hour refers to Jewish Christians, for John was an apostle through the circumcision, Galatians 2.9, and his epistle was written first to such, see 2.7. The whole world signifies God's elected scattering among the Gentiles. Romans 3.25 shows that Christ's propitiation is limited to those who put their faith in it. Scripture always interprets Scripture. If the reader really desires to know the meaning of 1 John 2.2, let him compare John 11.51.52 and 17.20, carefully noting the also. That this expression, the whole world, is not an unlimited one, is clear from the last clause of Revelation 13.3. Compared with Revelation twenty four or Revelation twelve nine with Matthew twenty four twenty four. To affirm that Christ shed his blood for the sins of all mankind is to be guilty of charging him with rebellion against the sovereign will of God. But how far from the truth is such a concept? Every part of our Lord's conduct on earth was an act of obedience to the Father's will, John six thirty eight. How then could he lay down his life for any but those who were given him of the Father to be redeemed from among men? Had he laid down his life for all mankind, he would have gone beyond his commission. James Haldane. It remains to be pointed out that there is a relative universality to Christ's sacrifice in three respects. First, in time, its efficacy was not limited to one generation or dispensation. Being foreordained before the foundation of the world, First 1 Peter 1.20, his merits extended to all believers from Abel onwards. Second, in place, The efficacy of Christ's death was not to be limited to any one nation, Revelation 5.9. Third, in virtue, the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sins, 1 John 1.7. Christ's sacrifice made atonement for Noah's drunkenness, Lot's incest, David's murder, Peter's denial, Paul's persecution of the church. In these three respects, there is no limitation to his sacrifice. Luke 19.41-44. Christ's weeping over Jerusalem is often regarded as his lamentation over lost sinners. Such was not the case. Verses 43-44 show plainly that he had before him the destruction of the city. As he foresaw the awful siege and contemplated the unparalleled temporal calamities, he was deeply moved. As the nation, the doom of the Jews was sealed. The things belonging to their civic peace were now hid from their eyes. But so far from their spiritual state being hopeless, or Christ be willing that, he knew full well that in a few weeks at most thousands of them would believe to the saving of their souls. Space will only allow us to notice briefly a few more texts. The all-men of Romans 5.18 is explained by 1 Corinthians 15.22. 1 Corinthians 8.11 asks a question, not state the fact. It warns against the evil tendency of uncharitable conduct. The all for whom Christ died 2 Corinthians 5.15 are in the same verse said to live unto him which died for them the word of 2 Corinthians 5.19 are those unto whom God is not imputing their trespasses and that is certainly not the world of the ungodly Second Peter 2.5 the living God of 1 Timothy 4.10 is the Father see Matthew 16.16 and Savior there means preserver in a temporal way Christ tasted death for every Hebrews two nine. There is no word for man in the Greek, and the next verse, Joseph, it is every son. That some whom the Lord bought, first second Peter two one, shall be damned presents no difficulty. He bought the field, Matthew 13.43-44, but redeemed only his people as man, Acts seventeen, thirty one. He has acquired the right to judge and dispose of all. To reason, as some have done from the second half of Hebrews 9.26, that Christ made atonement for no man's sins in particular, but only for sin in general, is really too cruel for serious consideration. Yet this is what is being taught in many places today. The cross is looked upon as little more than an honoring of the moral government of God and satisfying of his justice abstractly considered. Such a theory involves this absurdity that Christ died not for the sinners, but for sin. Sufficient to point out the reputation that sin has no existence apart from sinners. Sin is not a mere non-entity or metaphysical abstraction, but a moral agent to which it belongs. Separate sin from sinners, and it ceases to be. Surely the Son of God died for something else than a mere abstraction. To say that in the atonement of Christ, God had laid a sufficient and suitable basis for the salvation of all men If so be they, would avail themselves of it may sound very plausible, yet is it in reality meaningless jargon. Such an assertion ignores the eternal and sovereign election of the Father. It dissevers the work of the Spirit from the work of Christ. It repudiates the lost condition of man, while professing to widen the extent of the atonement, it compromises its reality and efficacy. To say that everything turns on the sinner's acceptance is to affirm that Christ did nothing more for those who are saved, than he did for those who are lost. It is not faith which gives divine efficacy to the blood. It was the blood which efficaciously purchased the faith. To make the eternal salvation of sinners turn upon an act of their own will would not only believe in the success of the redemption work of Christ contingent upon the fickle caprice of men, but would allow them to divide the honors with Christ. To talk of God's offering assistance to sinners while he leaves them in a state of unregeneracy is a various trifle. To say that Christ died for all sin of all who hear the gospel, and that the only thing which can now damn them is their unbelief is to fly in the face of Ephesians 5, 5, 6, and so forth. Moreover, such a statement is really a contradiction in terms. Either their unbelief is sin, or it is not. If not, then why are they punished for it? If it be then, according to their own affirmation, Christ atoned for it, and there is nothing more in their unbelief than there is in their other sins to hinder them from partaking of the fruits of Christ's sacrifice. Let such choose which horn of the dilemma they please. Seeing that Christ died for the elect only, how is the gospel to be preached to sinners indiscriminately? This question will be carefully considered and answered at length in the following chapter. Chapter 21 Chapter 21 the atonement, its typification. Christ has been greatly dishonored and his atonement grievously misrepresented by the attempts which have often been made to illustrate it from supposed analogies in human relations. Rightly has it been said that the plan of redemption, the office of our surety, the satisfaction which he rendered to the claims of justice against us, have no parallel in the relations of men to one another. We are carried above the sphere of the highest relations of created beings in the august counsels of the eternal and independent God. Shall we bring our own lineage to measure We are in the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in perfection, will, and purpose. If the righteousness of the Father demands a sacrifice, the love of the Father provides it. But the love of the Son runs parallel with that of the Father, and not only in the general understanding, but in every act of it, we see the Son's full and free consent. That's from Mark. In the Wilderness, Volume 6. But while no parallel to the great transaction or to the relation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to its accomplishment can be found in any of the relations of mere creatures to one another, God has graciously adapted a series of types historically and ceremonially to the illustration of His wondrous plan and especially to portray the various aspects of the office and work of Christ. In them, the divine wisdom is signaled, signally displayed, and it is the part of human wisdom to devote our closest attention to the same. By the typical system, God was not only educating his people for the good things to come, but was also preparing human language to be a fit medium for the revelation of his grace in Christ. It is to the types we must turn if we would define the right the sacrificial terms of the New Testament. But an impression obtains in some quarters that instruction by the types belongs to an inferior dispensation and was only designed for the church in the days of its infancy. Scripture teaches otherwise. It is true that the typology of the Pentatech is the divine kindergarten, yet it is also true that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, Romans 15.4, and that God's dealings with Israel were our types, 1 Corinthians 10.6, margins. Yea, so far from the study of the types being an elementary one, Hebrews 5.10-12 shows that they furnished our strong meat. While it is true that the topology of the Pentateuch is the divine kindergarten, this does not mean either that the teaching of the types is to be lightly esteemed, nor that the instruction which they furnished is inferior in quality to that which is given in the epistles. No schoolchild is really qualified to take in the teaching of the higher grades until he is thoroughly familiar with and has more or less mastered the lessons of the lower grades. So none are fully equipped to receive the evangelical teachings of the New Testament if the key phrases of the Old Testament types are neglected. Not only has the sacrificial work of Christ as many aspects as there are great sacrifices in the Ventatec, but the doctrinal statements of the epistles are frequently couched in the language of the types and can only be rightly interpreted in the light which they furnish. A type is something emblematic or symbolic, used to express, embody, represent, or forecast some person, truth, or event. It is an image or similitude of something else sustaining to doctrinal teaching some such relation as a picture does to a precept or promise, representing to the eye or imagination a concept addressed to the ear or understanding. It is one of the most frequent forms of figurative teaching in Scripture but being sometimes more obscure than obvious demands keener insight and closer study, A.T. Pearson. The types were prophecies, forecasts of things to come, and therefore do they furnish one of the most striking and conclusive proofs of the divine inspiration of the scriptures, for only he who knew the end from the beginning could have so accurately, so fully, and so marvelously anticipated and adibrated Calvary thousands of years before Christ died. The Old Testament times were a mode of instruction of the way in which God was to be approached and were peculiarly suited to the human mind struggling with a sense of guilt, and they have furnished to the church of all times a vocabulary or nomenclature without which men could not with sufficient precision have been able to hold intercourse with each other on the subject of the atonement. It deserves special notice that prophecy is, and the sacrifices are always found together, and throw light upon each other, and that they run in parallel lines through the entire Old Testament economy. Nay, the sacrifices may be regarded as sort of a prophecy, or a guarantee to which the veracity of God was pledged, for the shadow must one day be a reality, Jared Smeaton. A type is a prophetic symbol, and since prophecy is the prerogative of Him who sees the end from the beginning, a real type, implying, as it does, a knowledge of the reality, can only proceed from God. Live Bampton lectures. The Old Testament types supply incontrovertible evidence that the gospel was no novel invention of New Testament times. When the risen Savior would make known to his disciples the meaning of his death, we read that Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, Luke twenty four twenty seven. So far from the evangel of the apostle being any absolutely new thing, every element in it was revealed long centuries before their birth, not only in words but in visible representations. There was both a wondrous anticipation of and preparation for the gospel. Thus a reverent contemplation of the type supplies the blessed confirmation of the faith, for they attest the divine authorship of both testaments. Moreover, they stimulate adoration, even when we know a person we enjoy looking at his pictures, so here it is Christ that is before us in them. The divine origin of sacrifice is self-evident. Whoever would have dreamed of the device of offering animal sacrifices to God as a method of acceptable worship, that Abel should have brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof Genesis 4.4 4, can only be satisfactorily accounted for on the ground that he knew this was what God required from him and this is precisely what the New Testament affirms Hebrews 11.4 declares that it was by faith that Abel offered his sacrifice and Romans 10.17 says faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God thus Abel had received a revelation from God and believing what he had heard acted accordingly. Moreover, the acceptance of Abel's sacrifice by divine testimony of approval, Genesis 4.4, which no doubt was given by the descendant of consuming fire from heaven, Leviticus 9.29, Judges 6.21, 1 Kings 18.38, intimate the same thing. That solemn testimony of reception would only have terrified the offerer had he himself invented this mode of worship the lightning shooting around the altar the consuming the victim would have conveyed the impression of an angry god. How then could they have apprehended by this means that they were reconciled? How could they have known without a divine revelation that this consuming fire was a token of divine acceptance? George Smith wrote that. The great sacrifice of Christ was foreshadowed from the beginning. He who predestinated the salvation of his elect did also appoint the means thereto the Lamb was foreordained before the foundation of the world, First 1 Peter one twenty. Then what memorial could be devised more obstinate than that of animal sacrifices? By such a means was exemplified the death which had been denounced upon man's disobedience, and in shedding of the victim's blood and the violent character of its death was portrayed something of the awfulness of that death which was the wages of sin. At the same time a fit representation was also made of that death that was to be undergone by the Redeemer, And thus there was connected in one view the two cardinal facts in the history of men, the fall and recovery from it. The Old Testament sacrifices were showing forth of the Lord's death to he came. It is both important and blessed to note that the gospel covenant was revealed by God immediately after the fall. The promise that the woman's seed should bruise a serpent's head, Genesis 3.15, and the institution of the types, Genesis 3.21, were to the very end that faith and hope might be preserved in what God had so graciously proposed. God did not leave even our first parents in ignorance of his merciful designs, but made known the nature of his eternal counsel. Soon after, a further revelation was made to Cain and Abel, and still later to others, the infinite wisdom of God so contrived the types that they might, in the most intelligible manner that material things can describe spiritually, signify the Redeemer and life and salvation through him from the time of the fall there has been but one way open to heaven and that was through Christ and all believers before and under the law hope for pardon of sins and salvation through him in hopes of that pardon and salvation they observed the typical services W. Romaine wrote that that the Old Testament saints perceived something at least of the mystical and spiritual meaning of the types is clear from a number of passages that they had a much clearer and fuller apprehension of them than is commonly supposed is the writer's firm conviction The Lord Jesus declared that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and was glad. John 8.56 Hebrews 11.13 tells us that the patriarchs confessed themselves to be strangers and pilgrims on the earth, but shows they knew that their true inheritance was in heaven, while Hebrews 11.14.16 expressively states they sought and desired a heavenly country. Job said, I know that my Redeemer liveth 19.25 And the Hebrew word, therefore, Redeemer, signifies one who is a Redeemer by right of affinity or kinship, not only a Redeemer in act, but in office. So also David acknowledged, My flesh longeth for thee, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, Psalm 63, 2, that is, by means of the figures and shadows of the vessels of the tabernacle and the Levitical services and sacrifices. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear enunciates one of the principles of divine work in everything, the types not accepted. The farther we perceive, the profounder their meaning, and the fuller their detail. In the divine clothing of our first parents with coats of skins, Genesis 3.21, there were illustrated the facts that a fallen man needed an external covering to fit him to stand before God, that he could not produce this by his own labors, that the life of an innocent this victim must be taken in order to provide a suitable covering for him, that God himself must provide it. In the offering of Abel and God's acceptance of the same, Genesis 4.4, we learn that God can only regard any sinner with favor by virtue of his acceptance in Christ. The divine origin of sacrifice is again intimated in that before flesh was eaten by man, the distinction between clean and unclean animals was quite familiar, Genesis 8.20. The power of an accepted sacrifice to remove the divine curse was plainly signified in Genesis 8.21. The principle of substitution was strikingly manifested in Genesis 22.13. What may be termed the first great sacrifice was the Passover recorded in Exodus 12. There we behold the efficacy of the Lamb's precious blood to deliver those sheltering beneath it from the judgment of God which their sins deserved. What virtue, an infidel might ask, had the blood of a poor animal to secure the life of Israel's firstborn from the sword of the mighty and invisible angel? Was the blood on the door a necessary mark for the angel because he had not understood enough to distinguish between the houses of the Egyptians and the Israelites? Could not God have signified his pleasure to the angel without such a mark as this? The answer to these and all such questions is, God's design was to furnish a type of Christ and instruct the faith of his people in things to come. The following is a bare outline of the point of the Passover type which may be profitably studied by the reader. First divine judgment was pronounced, all the firstborn, parentheses, the representatives of the family, in parentheses, not of the land of Egypt shall die. Exodus eleven died. Second, God put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel so that not one of his own people were hurt, Exodus eleven seven. Third, not by Israel's choice or Moses' recommendation, but by divine appointment, every Israelitish household was to take an unblemished lamb, kill it, and apply its blood to the outside of his house, Exodus 12, 3, 7. Fourth, the divine promise was, When I see the blood, I will pass over you, Exodus 12:13). Fifth, the angel entered not such houses, for death had already done its work there. A substitute had been slain. Here is redemption, deliverance from judgment. At Sinai, God made known his will much more fully respecting the sacrifices which he required. A great deal of instruction therein is to be found in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, into most of which we cannot enter now. Much deeply important teaching is to be found therein in typical form. The Levitical sacrifice emphasized the enormity of sin and the punishment which must be visited upon it as well as set forth the dependence of the forgiving grace of God as an expiatory offering. Under the Mosaic economy, an elaborate system was developed to show that in many ways man offends God and is worthy of death. The sacrifices vividly evidenced the fact that the divine punishment incurred was inevitable, yet that that punishment could be borne by a substitute, and on that ground the offender could be restored to favor. The principal thing they were designed to exhibit was the indispensable necessity of atonement by vicarious expiation, The one great truth they illustrated was that God could not sacrifice his holiness to his love. That the Mosaic sacrifices all pointed forward to Christ and had their end in him was evidenced by the fact that very soon after he had come and shed his blood, God caused the shadows to pass away. Within a very few years, the temple was destroyed, and with it all the Jewish sacrifices ceased. And though a century or two later, Julian the Apostate gave Jews permission to rebuild their temple, and that for the very purpose of restoring ancient rites, yet God from heaven blasted all their attempts in a miraculous and extraordinary manner. The Levitical sacrifices made clear sure to men the ground on which the divine pardon could be obtained. It was not an act of absolute mercy, nor was it bestowed on sole condition of penance, but on the consideration of something quite distinct from both. And it shall be, when he shall be guilty in one of these things, that he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing. And he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord for his sin, and the priest shall make an atonement for him concerning his sin, and it shall be forgiven him, Leviticus 5, 5 6, and 10. If we compare these verses with Leviticus 17:11, which informs us that it is the blood which makes an atonement for the soul, then the proof is conclusive that the sacrifice presented by the offender was the appointed means of obtaining forgiveness for his transgression. The burnt offering, Leviticus 1, and the sin offering, Leviticus 4, claimed particular attention, for not only were they the most important sacrifices of the Levitical dispensation, as Psalms 40, day 6, intimates, but they represented the sufferings of our great high priest under two distinct aspects. The burnt offering principally shows Christ as he was to God, the sin offering as he is to men. In both he was represented as sin-bearer, for in both of these sacrifices transfer was made of sin by the priest laying his hands on the head of the victim, Leviticus 1:4 4, and 4:4. 4, 4. In both, the victim's blood was shed and sprinkled, Leviticus 1:5 and 4:4 4, 4 through 6. In both, atonement was made for sin, Leviticus 1:4 4, and 4:20. 4, and both were burnt, either wholly or in part, upon the altar, Leviticus 1:9 and 4:9 and 10. These points of union were sufficiently close to show that they corresponded in representing the sacrifice offered by our high priest on the cross, but there were also distinctive differences between them of a character sufficiently marked to show that they represented Christ's sacrifice under different aspects. Thus the burnt offering was voluntary, Leviticus 1, 2 and 3, the sin offering compulsory, Leviticus 4, 2 and 3. The burnt offering was flayed, cut into pieces, and the inwards and legs washed in water, but none of these three things were required of the sin offering. The blood of the burnt offering was merely sprinkled around about the altar, one eleven, but the blood of the sin offering was put upon the horns of the altar, sprinkled seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary, and poured out at the bottom of the altar of burnt offering, Leviticus 4.6 and 7. Other differences we now pass over, desiring to direct attention merely to the first one mentioned. The voluntariness of Christ's death is clearly brought out in Psalms forty, seven and eight, and Ephesians five twenty five, John ten, seventeen and eighteen also shows he freely laid down his life for his sheep. But when in the council of eternity, ratified by the everlasting covenant ordered in all things ensure, Christ had undertaken to be our security, then what was before purity free and voluntary became in a sense compulsory. Just as when God binds himself by oath, he is obliged to fulfill his word, so Christ, once he had bound himself to stand in his people's place, instead was no longer free, though not that he wished to be free. Just as the type was bound with cords into the horns of the altar, Psalm 118, verse 27, so Christ was held fast to the cross not only by love to his people, which floods could not quench, but by his own eternal covenant engagement. A substitution of Christ in the sinner's place was most distinctly shown in the types, particularly in the sin offering. Before the animal was slaughtered, the sacrificing priest laid his hands upon its head, Leviticus 4.3.4. 4. That act represented the transferring of sin from the transgressor to the victim, Leviticus 16.21. It identified the one with the other. It showed the substitution of the victim for the offender and declared by a visible sign that it bare his sins and endured his death penalty. In this way, was the solemn, yet blessed truth of imputation foreshadowed. It was because God transferred to Christ the guilt of his elect, constituting him sin for us, that the sword of divine justice smote him as he bare our sins in his own body on, parenthesis, or two of the tree. The most important of all types is that which is found in Leviticus 16, the appointed ritual for the great day of atonement. The type of Leviticus 16 goes much farther than does the one in Exodus 12. The Passover illustrated the redemptive character of Christ's sacrifice. That of Leviticus 16 is propitiatory nature. In Exodus 12, we see the blood sheltering from judgment those who are under it. In the early chapters of Leviticus, we see the power of the blood restoring to communion the penitent transgressor. But in Leviticus 16, we behold the blood opening away into the very presence of God, entitling the penitent and believing worshiper to come with boldness unto his very throne. By a careful comparison of Deuteronomy 27 and Leviticus 16, we may discover how the law was and still is a schoolmaster unto Christ, Galatians 3.24. In the former chapter, we see that the law demanded implicit and complete obedience to its demands, verse 10 and how that the Levites pronounced with a loud voice a curse on the transgressor of it, verses 14-15. That curse was repeated twelve times according to the number of Israel's tribes, and on each pronouncement thereof all the people were required to say amen, the final word being, Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, verse 26, and see Galatians 3.10. The law required sinless perfection under the penalty of eternal damnation, and thus it revealed the imperative need of an atonement. While in Leviticus 16 we see how that law by its great sin offering with its blood of atonement pointed forward to Christ. The sacrificial system of Judaism reached its climax on the great day of atonement. As the ark was the chief object in the tabernacle, so the annual day of perpetuation was the chief one in Israel's religious calendar. On that auspicious occasion the high priest divested himself of his robes of glory and beauty Exodus 28 and put on the holy linen garments Leviticus 16.4 The spotless white in which he was clothed spoke of the perfect righteousness of Christ which tested as it was both by man John 8.46 and Satan 14.30 and then passing through the infinitely searching scrutiny of God under the fiery trial of the cross ensured the divine acceptance of that satisfaction which he made to God on behalf of his people Two young goats were selected for a sin offering though there were two animals it was but one offering The two goats were selected in order that a full representation might be given, the one being designed more expressively to exhibit the means, and the other the effect of the atonement. They were brought and presented together before the Lord, verse 7, the Lord determining by lot which of them was to be slain. The other animal stood by and was atoned for, Hebrew of verse 10, by the dying victim, and then bore away the sins laid upon it into the land of eternal forgetfulness. Verses 21-22, a blessed figure that remission of our sins when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. Passing by what was done with the bullock, we confirm our attention unto the two goats. After the one had been killed, the high priest took his blood within the veil and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat not once, but seven times before him to provide a perfect standing ground for his people. The antitype of this is seen in Hebrew 9:12. But by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, Hebrews nine twelve. The consequence of this is that having therefore, brethren, boldest to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, Hebrews ten, nineteen and twenty. After the high priest had finished his work inside the sanctuary, we are told he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goats shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhabited. Verses 20 to 22. That was a continuation and completion of the ceremony concerning the sin offering so that this symbolic transfer of their sins to the head of the scapegoat which bore them away, plainly signified that the atonement effected by the sacrifice of the first goat was a complete removal of all their transgressions from before the face of God. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall put off the linen garments, which he put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. Leviticus 16.23 Why? To denote that his work was finished. The blessed antitype of this we see in Luke 24.12 On the resurrection morning, those who came to Christ's empty sepulchre behold the linen clothes lying there, a token that he was risen from the dead, and so of atonement completed and accepted by God. One other important feature in the types often overlooked claims are notice, namely the burning of the victim's body on the altar, Leviticus 1.10. The animal was first slain as a just judgment for the sins which had been transferred to it by the laying on its head of the hand of the offerer, and then after guilt had been born, its place was laid on the altar and burned, and went up with acceptance unto God a sweet-smelling Savior. In this was represented the glorious truth that not only was Christ our sin-bearer, but that he used also our righteousness before God, Jeremiah 23.6, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are identified with him not only in his death for us, but also in the fragrance of it before God. In Numbers 19, there is yet another most important type upon which we can only now say a few words. In it, we see how the death of Christ has made full provision for these, those defilements which he, his people, contracted while passing through this evil world. In it, too, we behold again the steady progress in the types and deeper instruction which God gave to Israel from time to time. They were not yet in the land of Pharaoh when the Passover was instituted. The doom of Egypt and their own deliverance therefrom were the thoughts then presented to their souls. Later they were brought nigh to God, himself tabernacling in their midst, and in Leviticus 16 they are shown the high demands of his holiness. Now in Numbers 19 they are taught that even the unavoidable contact with death, parenthesis, the world lying in the wicked one, defiled. But God has provided cleansing from it. In closing we call attention to one other deeply important value of the types and the use to which they may be put. They furnish an infallible rule by which can be tested any man's parenthesis our own included interpretation of the New Testament scriptures concerning the atonement. He who denies the penal and vicarious nature of Christ's death repudiates the clear testimonies of the types, he who sets aside the efficacy of his sacrifice by reducing it to a merely making possible the salvation of man does likewise for the types know nothing of an ineffectual sacrifice so too in them we see plainly the limitation of God's love to his elect people for no lamb no lamb was provided for the Egyptians nor did Aaron make any atonement for the sins of the Midianites and the Amorites chapter 22 The atonement is proclamation. We have now arrived at what is, from some standpoints, the most difficult aspect of our subject. Exactly, what is it which the servant of God ought to preach? Or more specifically, what constitutes the main item in his message to the unsaved and in what is he to instruct the saints? To many it appears that he who clearly apprehends the limitations of God's love to his elect and the satisfaction of Christ being made for them only, It is to be fettered in the preaching of the gospel. Yea, not a few suppose that if a preacher really believes such doctrine as these, he will have no message at all for the unsaved. But such is far from being the case. Those who draw such conclusions err grievously. No honest mind can ponder the epistles of Paul without seeing that he believed firmly in the sovereign love and discriminating grace of God and the restricted design of the atonement Yet none can read through the Acts without discovering that St. Paul was a most zealous evangelist and preached a gospel which was free as the air we breathe. That Christ died only for those who shall be infallibly saved is a doctrine but seems to have an adverse bearing towards the world at large and to embarrass a free proclamation of the gospel. A feeling arises that there is something very much like an inconsistency or incompatibility between the restricted design an efficacy of the great perpetuation to a predetermined and limited number of the race and the commission which Christ has given to his servants. In seeking to grapple with this difficulty, let us begin by inquiring. Is an unlimited atonement necessary in order to warrant ministers of the gospel, tendering divine pardon to all men without exception, and inviting and exhorting them to come to Christ? In seeking answer to this question, it should be evident that our conduct in preaching The gospel in addressing our fellow men with a view to their salvation should not be regulated by any inferences of our own from the nature and extent of the provision actually made for saving them, but is to be governed solely by the instructions which God has given. It is not for us to reason and argue, but to obey. The commission which Christ has given to his servants is too plain to be misunderstood. They are commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16.15 They are required to proclaim to their fellow men of whatever character, and in all variety of circumstances, glad tidings of great joy. They are bidden to preach repentance and remission of sins in his name among all nations. Luke 24:47. They are enjoined to say, All things are ready, come unto the marriage, and to go forth into the very highways, and as many as they shall find, bid to the marriage. Matthew 22, 4, 9. They are to invite men to come to Christ and beseech their hearts to be reconciled to God. Second Corinthians 5.20 They are to freely announce that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Romans 1.16 And that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10.13 Nothing could be clearer than this, and no philosophical reasoning or theological sophistries must be allowed to negate their marching orders. God's revealed will is our only rule to walk by and must ever be held a sufficient warrant for all that we do. In seeking to know our duty as to whom we should preach and as to what we are to say to our fellow men, holy writ is to be our sole guide and authority. Denominational customs, credo presidencies, the example of eminent preachers are no criterion at all. To the law and to the testimony, Isaiah 8.20, must be our one and only recourse. Our business is to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4.2, leaving God to apply it according to his eternal purpose. We are to sow besides all waters, Isaiah 32.20. Thus our duty is clearly defined, like the sower in the parable, Matthew 13, we are to scatter the seeds on the stony as well as on the good ground. The servants of God are to preach the gospel, Mark 16.15, which is a proclamation of mercy through Christ. The gospel is the divine revelation of the way of salvation by free grace through the Lord Jesus. It announces deliverance from condemnation and bestowment of eternal life upon all who would comply with its terms. The gospel presents not a system of philosophy, but the person of the God-man is the object of faith. It makes known how the thrice holy God may be just and yet the justifier of law sinners. The things of our eternal concernment are therein proposed to us, a compliance with this divine revelation is made of repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 20, the remission of sins is pretty promised to all who thus comply with her. But it also implies and denounces tidings of the very opposite nature to all who neglect it. He that believeth not shall be damned, the Mark 16, 16. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel, Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. Now in preaching the gospel to a single individual, which is usually more difficult than preaching to a crowd, it is in no wise necessary to say to him, Christ died for you, he bore your sins on the cross. Neither the Lord Jesus nor the apostles adopted such a mode of procedure. Take one pertinent illustration from each of them. In his discourse to Nicodemus, Christ did not say, As Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up for you. But even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. John 3.14 Thus pressing the responsibility of his hearer. So too when the Philippian jailer cried, What must I do to be saved? Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But he did not add, Who died for you? It is not until after we have truly believed that we learn we are among the favored company for whom the incarnate Son shed his precious blood. The gospel declares that Christ died for the ungodly, Romans 5, 6, and that the most ungodly wretch there is out of hell who repents and believes shall be saved. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1:15), yea, even the chief of sinners. That great Fact supplies a warrant to preach the gospel unto all men, but it is only as the individual sinner believes on Christ that it becomes known that Christ died for him. Thus, to preach the gospel to every preacher and call on them to believe and be saved is quite consistent, for it is a divinely revealed truth that whosoever believeth shall be saved. Any man who experiences a difficulty in freely preaching the gospel because he cannot announce that Christ died for every individual of the human race does not clearly understand what the gospel is. The gospel message is that Christ died for the most guilty who repent and believe. Nor is God guilty of the slightest deception in sending forth his servants to tender salvation to all sinners on the terms that they repent and believe, for he is true to his word. He does save every sinner who complies with his terms, nor does he withhold his spirit from any who truly desire him to work in them a saving repentance and faith. The ground on which a sinner is bidden to believe unto the saving of his soul is neither God's decree of election, nor that Christ died for him in particular, but the plain declaration of the gospel itself, namely, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16:16. 16, 16. It cannot be said too emphatically that the only warrant for personal faith in Christ which any man has is that which the indiscriminate commands, invitations, and promises of the gospel hold forth. If we were assured of the absolute universality of redemption, or if we were permitted to read every name recorded in the man's book of life, the case would be no plainer and more certain than it is now. The one who cannot lie most solemnly declares that whosoever believeth in his Son shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ himself expressly announces, Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. John 6.37 Any other warrant than that? would be entirely inconsistent with the nature of faith to demand it is sheer rebellion. Neither God's sovereign formation of an elect company unto salvation, nor the limitation of Christ's atonement to that company, in any wise alters the fact, or militates against the truth of the indiscriminate tender of pardon which is made by and through the gospel. It is every man's duty to repent and believe the gospel. It is God's gracious purpose to receive and save all who do thus repent and believe. The proclamation which God is making through the gospel is real and sincere. The reason why so many do not benefit from that proclamation and avail themselves of the prophet's mercy is their own willful refusal of it. The door of divine mercy stands wide open. Over its portals stands written, Whosoever will may come. If those invited insist upon making excuse, then their blood is upon their own head. Their very refusal to come to Christ, that they might have life, John five forty only makes manifest the inveteracy of their sin, and will yet most fully justify the righteous judgment of God in the day to come. Psalm 51, 4; Matthew 22.12, Romans 3.19 An indiscriminate offer of an interest in the atonement has been made for 2,000 years since Christ died. But remember that the same indiscriminate offer was made for 4,000 years before he died. The offer then was that if man would believe upon a Christ to be sacrificed thereafter, they should be saved. Now is it sense or nonsense to believe that at the end of those 4,000 years Christ died for the purpose of saving those who had already rejected him and who had consequently gone to their own place? Would it not have met the precise case of all who lived on earth before his advent if he had promised them that at the end of time he would die to save all those who had previously believed? Would there have been any propriety in his promising to die also for those who had previously rejected his kind offers and been lost? As far as the design of the atonement, the purpose to be attained by his death is concerned. What conceivable difference does it make whether the sacrifice of Christ be offered at the beginning, the middle, or the end of human history? If he had died at the end, he certainly could not die for those who had previously rejected his offer and perished therefor. And since he did die in the middle, why may not the gospel be offered on the same terms to all men as well as before his death?